Hello, we're back with episode four of the Unarchived History Podcast. I'm Misha. And I'm Dan. So, let's have a bit of a serious chat this week. Museums. So why do you say that? Well, it was on my mind because every Monday from 8 to 9pm, it's Museum Hour on Twitter, and there's some really interesting and valid discussions going on about our museums. But tell me, Dam, what's your favourite museum that you've ever visited? And what do you love or hate to see in museums? Well, my favourite museum in London is, without a doubt, the Imperial War Museum. I prefer things that are a bit more military-related because I like the raw physical value of the objects that are on display and, in some cases, linked to this, the shock value of it all. Mm, fair enough. And do you have any favourite exhibits that are going on there? There are a few new exhibits that have just came on board, including fighting extremes from Ebola to ISIS. And this shows how British armed forces deal with the issues of global security, and it's great. But there's a new one coming in next year, an exhibit on the war on terror, and I can't wait to see this. But you're really into archaeology, are you not, Misha? Um, what's your favourite site? Yeah, for me, I don't think you can beat a real archaeological site. I'd always wanted to visit Pompeii in Italy, and it didn't disappoint when my wish came true last year. What about your favourite museums? Well, places like the British Museum and the Natural History are great, but I really do wonder about the future of museums and where they're headed. I'd love for people to be able to get up close and personal to history as it once was. Well, hopefully everything we're doing in this podcast allows people to see that there really is history all around us. And whether it's stored in a museum or passed down verbally through generations, it all needs to be preserved for the future. I couldn't agree more. So Dan, do you want to share where we're off to in today's penultimate episode? Today we are in West London's Royal Borough of Kensington. Notting Hill was always on trend with its inhabitants, changing ever so often with the times. The area's population was dominated by the high influx of post-war immigration, which later resulted in a political battlefield focusing on racism and anti-immigration laws. However, by the ingenuity of the West Indian Gazette editor, Claudia Jones, a carnival to showcase Caribbean culture was launched, now known as the Notting Hill Carnival. I've been really looking forward to this one, so let's get started. As was common on the outskirts of London in the 19th century, Notting Hill began life as a farm. Once the land had been inherited by James Weller Labrook in the 1820s, all this changed. James had big plans for his new land, and along with architect Thomas Allison, the pair developed plans to build an estate loosely based on the development around Regent's Park. The Labrook estate would be distinctly known for its crescent shape, backing onto neatly landscaped gardens. Plans were going ahead well, until the building boom crashed, and no building leases were granted until 1830. And so, the land was set to work upon by a number of different developers. In the late 1830s, entrepreneur John White leased a large part of the land, 140 acres to be precise, with ambitions to create a race course that rivalled Ascot and Epsom. The course would be known as Kensington Hippodrome. Unfortunately, it didn't turn into the success expected for a number of reasons. Built on London clay, races could only be held at certain points throughout the year. Also, because it took up so much land and blocked public access, local resentment grew. The course closed its doors in 1842 
And it just so happened that this was the perfect time, economically, for Labrook and Allison to continue their building plans. Realising his vision, the area attracted many wealthy people. But this took a turn in the 20th century, when many of the grand houses were turned into flats as people couldn't afford to keep such a large house running, and many of their wealthy moved away. In the 1930s, the area had become a slum, with landlords such as Peter Rackman keeping prices low and conditions grim. Criminality rose, and during the 50s, there was even a serial killer on the loose. By the 1970s, the area moved towards gentrification as the neighbourhood was declared a conservation area, and many famous residents have lived there since, including David Cameron, Stella McCartney and Claudia Schiffer. My wife was murmuring that our house in Ladbrock Grove was getting too small, and the smell of the lorries accelerating up the hill lay heavily on the air of our basement kitchen. So one morning I said, Give me that list of houses for sale. I'll bet you a bottle of Guinness I can buy you a new house and be back here in half an hour. And I did, and I was. You see, 111 Elgin Crescent had been gutted by the previous owner, who lived next door. It was first on the house agent's list. So I walked round to see it, and after five minutes I said, Yes, I'll buy it. Here's a 10% deposit. And I put the cheque on the owner's desk. He was somewhat astonished. Don't you need a survey? To which I replied, What is there to survey? You see, apart from the roof, leaking badly, and the basement floor, needing new concrete, there was very little to survey. No floors, no doors, no ceilings. I was back in half an hour as I had promised, and it proved to be the best buy I ever made. Ladbroke Estate is a beautiful area of London that simply oozes wealth. As you've highlighted, Misha, over time, West London itself changed dramatically. It has always been associated with the elite of London due to the presence of large mansions and villas in the area. However, gentrification in recent years has really driven this to new heights. Um, what about the remains of the old Ladbroke Estate? Well, today many streets in Notting Hill bear the legacy of the Ladbroke name, and the former Ladbroke Estate is now a conservation area run by the Ladbroke Association. It's a non-profit organisation with around 400 members dedicated to preserving the original vision of the Ladbroke Estate and maintaining its architectural integrity. It's true. The word Ladbroke can be seen everywhere. And it's great that there's a local group working to conserve the history of the architecture in the area too. I couldn't agree more. So where are we heading next? At 191 Portobello Road stands Britain's second oldest surviving cinema, the oldest being the Phoenix and Finchley. Its opening date is debated, but falls between 1910 and 1911, and opened shortly after its namesake, the Electric Cinema in Birmingham. Built by Gerald Seymour Valentine to seat over 560 people, its exterior is grand, with a large dome and interiors based on the Italian Baroque style, with pillars and a high ceiling. Its first film shown was a silent period drama of Henry VIII. Entrance to the cinema cost three to six pennies, and included in the price was an orange and sticky bun. Although not as modern as some of the later additions to cinema across London, and especially in the West End, the cinema maintained a steady audience. During World War I, rumours were rife that the German cinema owners were guiding Zeppelin airships overhead to bomb the neighbourhood. 
In response, an angry mob attacked the cinema, throwing stones at its doors. Continuing to grow from strength to strength, by the 1940s, the cinema was receiving 4,000 visitors a week. It remained open throughout World War II, despite the government being against the large congregation of crowds, and the cinema had to be evacuated several times due to nearby bombs. The audience was guided to the nearest air raid shelter and given a refund on their way out. Taking a dip in sales during the 1950s to 60s, as the area's slums expanded and became less desirable. Rumours have it that serial killer John Christie, a professional projectionist, worked here. The cinema revived with gentrification and from 1968 became known as the Electric Cinema Club, specialising in showing cult films. In 2001, the cinema saw a multi-million development by local resident, the owner of the shop, Monsoon, who turned it into a luxury cinema, complete with restaurant and leather chairs. Definitely the best cinema I've ever been to. Forget overpriced popcorn, smelly seats and sticky floors of your local view. This is a totally different approach to the cinema experience. The seating's great. Large comfy armchairs, each with a side table, a lamp and a blanket. When you walk in for the first time, it feels more like a jazz club than a cinema. Down on the front row, there are four sofas that are more like king-sized beds, so you can sprawl out surrounded by food and absorb the brain candy in the arms of your beloved, just as you would at home, for slightly less than the price of two seats. Then the food. Honey-coated fried chicken and a portion of generously topped nachos were enough for us, but we wanted to try everything. All the food is indulgent, interesting and well-priced. Not cheap, but we left satisfied. The electric cinema has such a rich history and we're so lucky that it survived the war unscathed. It really does go a long way back. The second oldest cinema in the country. Can you tell us a bit more about the modern version, Dan? The new cinema is brilliant. It provides a sort of bespoke hipster cinema experience with its laid back leather chairs and side tables alongside its showings of the classics and cult movies. The site was acquired by Gabler Tooth in the 90s, an architect and owner of a nearby travel bookshop. Gabler sought to redevelop the commercial viability of the cinema for a new, more savvy audience. Gabler acquired a number of nearby buildings. He was then able to extend and upgrade the cinema with a new toilet, an air conditioning plant and a restaurant, transforming it into the original Grade 2 listed building we know today. I really do have to book myself a ticket there. Me too. I can't believe I've missed out on all the luxury. But now let's move on to site three. This church stands at the heart of Notting Hill and once attempted to compete with Salisbury Cathedral's spire, the tallest in England. Reverend Samuel Walker planned his magnificent church as a centrepiece of the area and also as a tribute to his parents. Construction started in 1852, but it wasn't without its problems. Firstly, the marshy ground on which it was built meant that the great height for the spire could not be achieved, and instead they had to settle on one which stood at 30 metres. When finances ran out, building was halted and a group of travellers set up camp. The site became known as All Sinners in the Mud, and eventually building continued and was completed in 1861. 
Built in the Victorian Gothic style, the church inflicted serious damage in World War II and was vastly restored, redesigning it around the lavish high church style with shrines and gold leaf throughout. This caused uproar with Protestants, as this style of church was highly affiliated with Catholicism. Next door, you can find All Saints Church Hall, which has seen a range of activities over the years. Once a care home for older people, it was converted into a community centre, which saw a number of well-known bands playing throughout the 60s and 70s, including Pink Floyd and David Bowie. The hall was at the heart of the area's growing musical influence and also saw the London Free School using the facilities. Quite a few members of my family have held events in All Saints Church as they live around the corner. Marriages and christenings have both been held in here, so it holds a lot of memories for me and my family. I remember first visiting the church when I was about seven years old. I remember thinking it was a massive church and I still think the same even now. I would say it's quite an old-style church, especially on the outside, but once you step inside, you'll be blown away by the size. So Dan, in your process of digging deeper, what did you uncover about the Catholic controversy surrounding the chosen design of All Saints Church? As you probably well know, Misha, the history of England and London, particularly after the reign of Henry VIII, is one of religious reformation. The term high church worship, for which the All Saints Church in Notting Hill became known for, came about between 1931 to 1961 under the flamboyant vicarage of Friar John Twisdy. High church worship refers to the practice of ecclesiology, liturgy and theology and emphasises the formality and resistance to modernisation. It has often been closely associated to the practices of Catholicism and Greek Orthodoxy, as opposed to the so-called law church teachings of evangelicals. So how did this all manifest itself and turn into such great opposition? Well, this is difficult to say, Misha. It could be simple doctrinal disagreements between Christians in the area, directed towards the lavish style of the remodelling of the church. However, Britain has a long history of theological and political conflict with Catholicism. In the 20th century, Anglo-Catholicism became more closely aligned with socialism and the Labour Party. Hmm. I'm sure the historic suspicions that we all know surrounding Catholicism and socialism in general may have been an important factor in public perceptions of the church too. Exactly. Hence the Protestant uproar. Anyway, moving on, our next site isn't far away at all. As we've already discussed, the Notting Hill we know today hasn't always been this pristine. The Reverend Walker of All Saints Church sold the land next to his church to George Tippett, who went on to build houses on Colville Gardens and Powys Square. When building started in the 1870s, the area was still fairly middle class, and this was the target market. But as the face of the neighbourhood changed, he struggled to let his properties and was forced into subdividing them into smaller properties. But even with this flexibility, he was soon left bankrupt. The early 1900s saw high levels of migration to the area, of people from various nationalities, including people from Ireland, East Asia and Russia, as well as those from the Jewish faith. The first black community in the area began to grow from the 1920s, by the 1930s, the majority of grand houses now were one-room tenements and small flats, 
the area was referred to as a slum. Mark Strutt, who had inherited the site from 1948, stated, there wasn't a cupboard that didn't have anyone living in it. This gives some perspective of the overcrowded conditions. Selling the land to various buyers, one of these was a notorious Peter Rackman, a Polish immigrant himself. Rackman took advantage of the incoming immigration of those from the colonies after World War II, being called on to help rebuild the nation and who were in need of affordable housing. Whilst the infamous signs, no Irish, no black, no dogs, were posted, Rackman encouraged his white tenants to move out so he could further divide flats, charging immigrants higher rents. Using Xboxes and Alsatian dogs, Rackman instilled intimidation techniques to collect his owed rent. In 1965, with the introduction of the Rent Act, rates were regulated and it was more difficult for landlords to get away with exploiting tenants. They taught us at a school that England was the mother country. So you, I don't know, I thought everything was roses and nice and everybody was nice and, you know, but it was flipping crab laws, cold and miserable, you know what it was like. Lots of fog and smog, but the worst thing was about the housing. Like we couldn't get nowhere proper to live. And I came through from Southampton, ended up in Paddington, came straight here, went to number 31, right at the corner there. It was Rackman House because it had black people on all the floors. It's one room, and it's what they call in those days furnished apartments. But what it furnished with, it had a rough bed and, you know, one toilet for you all to share, one bathroom to share. Everywhere you go is no blacks, the notices are there, no Irish, no dogs. Colville Gardens is another perfect example of the regeneration and gentrification London has gone through over the years. But before this, it had a rather dark history, before it became one of the most expensive parts of London. Can you tell us more about this transformation, Dan? Just to add a little bit to what you've already discovered, Misha, in 1953, Colville Gardens was bought by Fernbank Investments, and so began the displacement of the residents to drive up prices, a practice that would be copied by Peter Rackman. In 1967, Fernbank Investments declared bankruptcy, and its owner, Bowen Davies, took his own life, declaring that he had caused suffering to very many, and the burden on my conscience is intolerable. It seems like many people have been taken advantage of in the area due to immigration and forced into ghettos. It seems so. From there on, the rapidly deteriorating buildings began to get the investment they required and now the street comprises of around 105 one- and two-bedroom apartments rebranded as Pinehurst Court. And it's a rather nice place to live, so I hear. A bit better of an outcome in the end, then. Well, it seems so, but only time can tell if the area is maintained. So I'm looking forward to our next site. It's safe to say that the film Notting Hill firmly has the residents of the area divided. Whilst the film arguably has brought fame to the area worldwide after the release of the film in 1999, many locals argue it's a poor representation of the true Notting Hill. Starring Hugh Grant and Julia Roberts, apparently Richard Curtis had written the screenplay after many restless nights lying awake. 
On its release, it was well received and went on to become the highest grossing British film that year. Living in the area, Richard knew Notting Hill well, commenting, it's a melting pot and the perfect place to set a film. With debates around filming in a busy area, the decision was finally made to go ahead filming on the actual streets of Notting Hill rather than to create a huge replica set. Many of the locations featured, such as Hugh's travel bookshop and his home, are real, with Portobello Road and Westbourne Park being heavily featured. Hugh's house in the film was owned by Richard Curtis at the time, famous for its bright blue door. The original door no longer stands as it was auctioned off once a new owner purchased the property and had grown tired with tourists knocking on her door. Unfortunately for her, this didn't dissuade anyone from turning up. As you'll see today, there's still a steady queue waiting to snap a photo of themselves knocking on its front. Hugh's travel bookshop in the film was based on a shop which stood on Blynham Crescent. This closed in 2011 despite celebrity support to keep it open and since has been renamed Notting Hill Bookshop. All right. It is undoubtedly a bit cheesy and slushy. Richard Curtis himself comes in for a lot of criticism generally. He's continually accused of making London look like a sanitised, poshified and sucrose-enhanced rom-com parody of the actual city, and the seed of that accusation was probably planted with this film. At the time, I, along with many others, pointed out that it concentrates on the, the well-off world of Yuppie Notting Hill and somehow never mentions the carnival. Moreover, Notting Hill always gets derided by Curtis fans themselves who claim that Four Weddings is the better movie, but I don't agree. Notting Hill is, in its contrived way, a very romantic film with an intense, heartfelt quality. Notting Hill is not a guilty pleasure, but an entirely innocent one. Come on, Dan. You being the film buff and all, what do you think? Does the Notting Hill movie actually portray what Notting Hill is really like? Honestly, I kind of want to be manly and pull apart a romantic comedy. But the truth is, one, it's a great film, and two... It's not wholly inaccurate of the people you will inevitably counter around Notting Hill. Do you really think so? I'm sitting on the fence for this one. Well, Notting Hill is a real melting pot of people of all cultures, backgrounds and classes. And my best friend runs the Portobello Star Cocktail Bar on Notting Hill, and I've seen many a celebrity in there. Perhaps not as famous as Julia Roberts or Hugh Grant, but A-listers often frequent the bar as it is one of the more upper-class spots in London and close to where many celebs live. Even better are the weird and wonderful street merchants that work in the market, who are probably more akin to the character of Spike, played by Reese fans. So perhaps you won't find the celebrity love of your life on Notting Hill, but you'll certainly might spot a celebrity or two and definitely meet a few weirdos. I think I'll have to agree with you there. Portobello Market runs north to south through the heart of Notting Hill. Before the 1740s, this road was known as Green's Lane, a long and winding country road linking through to Kensal Green. Portobello Farm was added to the area from 1740 and was named after Portobello in Panama. At the time, this had been a famous victory for the British and so lent its name to the area. If you look carefully, you'll see many signs of remembrance to this 18th century battle 
with the leader of the troop, Admiral Vernon, having a number of roads and buildings named after him in the surrounding area. The farm was eventually sold to a group of nuns, and from the 1850s, the area began developing into the shopping destination we know today. Shops began popping up along the road during the Victorian times, serving the wide range of people that lived around Paddington. At this time, the market would sell food and home essentials, but by the 1920s, more second-hand items and bric-a-brac was being sold. In 1927, the market traders got a licence to trade Monday to Saturday, which enraged local shopkeepers having to compete with this successful Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colours, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Market. From the 1940s to the 50s, the market saw more antique sellers, really establishing this as the face of the market. The busiest day is Saturday which is when the famous antique market is set up, containing some 2,000 stalls, making it the largest in the UK of its kind. Portobello Market still continues to sell a wealth of mixed goods, from clothing to essentials and fruit and veg, it certainly doesn't look to be going anywhere anytime soon. Famous inhabitants to live along the road include George Orwell, as well as it housing the record shop Rough Trade, a meeting place for many rock stars. I've got this medallion. This was made in 1731, and it was made as a celebration for Admiral Vernon capturing Portobello on the Isthmus of the Panama from the Spanish. And they named the, market, the lane Portobello after that victory. That's why it's called Portobello Road. Now, in Portobello Road, just opposite here, there's, there's Ver, Vernon Arcades. You've seen it just in Portobello Road? And that Vernon Arcade is named after Admiral Vernon. And uh, he, on this medallion, it's got six ships. And that was the six ships he, he captured the, the um, Portobello with. And on the other side, it's got him and the cannon, yeah? I think it's important to support local traders and have a local market. Um, the big superstores are killing off the, the local traders right, because they have got the ability to buy their goods in bulk cheaper than the local traders can buy their, their goods. And so there's a tendency towards local traders closing and supermarkets getting bigger. So much to see and do on Portobello Road, isn't there, Dan? There certainly is. And the market has historically been one of the most loved and attended attractions in London. You can buy almost anything in the market. However, if you want something special, be ready to fork out some serious cash, as its fame and reputation has drawn in more than just a few bric-a-brac vendors. Yeah, I know. The art and fashion on sale will be at home in any boutique shop or gallery. And George Orwell's house lies just down the road from the main street, heading towards Notting Hill Gate Tube Station. It's one of the best hidden gems in the area and was actually the first famous historical writer's house that I ever stumbled across by a chance reading of one of the little blue placards that hang 
hang from famous monuments all over London. I'd advise our listeners to keep an eye out for them because you never know what you might stumble across. Banksy is a prolific graffiti artist. Starting his work in Bristol, he made the move to London where the majority of his art can be found today, whilst at the same time creating numerous other pieces across the world. Using stencils to create his work, Banksy is famed for his street art with political connotations. Unlike the majority of artists, Banksy's pieces in the main are displayed in public areas, usually on walls. This tends to create a lot of debate over who owns the pieces. But isn't that the very nature of street art, that it fades over time and is temporary? Well, it wouldn't seem so, as in recent years some of Banksy's work have been regularly making the half a million pound mark, with one piece, called Keep It Spotless, making over a million pound. Some have been known to dismantle entire walls to sell a piece of Banksy's art for profit, This has, however, thrown up the question over protection, and today you'll often find a perspex screen covering the art. Banksy's art piece called The Graffiti Artist, found at the junction of Portobello Road and Cambridge Gardens, is a stencil of the 17th century Spanish artist Diego Velasquez. In this stencil, Velasquez is painting the name Banksy, perhaps poking fun at the popularity of street artists today, comparing them to those of the Baroque period. This piece was sold for £200,000, but still remains on show in Notting Hill. Banksy doesn't exclusively create wall art, but is also known for his sculptures. In 2015, he went one step further, hosting a whole theme park of his work called Dismaland in Western Supermare. Banksy's identity has never been confirmed, but many believe him to be Robert Cunningham after he was spotted erecting one of his pieces in Jamaica. I always remember drawing and making sketches when I was a kid. I'll probably see myself as kind of autistic all my life. Um, I found out about Banksy when I was 10 years old. I thought it was quite different and cool because the way he did with graffiti was a bit different from everyone else. My favourite Banksy is probably the Pulp Fiction one with Samuel Jackson and John Travolta's characters when they're holding bananas as guns. I think it's a protest about gun laws. And that's kind of the reason I like Banksy because he's quite controversial compared to other artists that tend to please others rather than say what they really want to say. I'm a big fan of Banksy. Have you seen the Banksy piece in Notting Hill, Dan? I've passed it a few times, Misha, and I've got to say it's brilliant. I'm also a fan of his work, and I really wish that I'd gotten a chance to go to Dismaland. Whoever purchased the piece for £200,000 has yet to remove it from its original location, now behind a perspex screen on Notting Hill, so there's still plenty of time to go see it if you're intending. There's a few additional graffiti tags that have been added to the work over the years, though, isn't there? They have, by artists actually other than Banksy. I think he would probably appreciate some of the additions, perhaps not the ones scrawled directly over his work, mind you, but certainly the chaotic stencil images drawn alongside it. The work gives a real sense of artistic value to Notting Hill, which has so many variations of creativity, the graffiti images do not look out of place.
Today, Notting Hill Carnival is held over two days on the August bank holiday weekend, each year. Regularly attracting up to two million people across both days, London's carnival has grown to become the largest street festival in Europe. The story of how Notting Hill came to be is a varied one, with many different figures contributing over the years to make it what it is today. Carnivals became a celebrated tradition in Europe's colonies, originating in the Caribbean and growing in popularity across South America too. Carnivals were a response to the masquerade balls that would be held by the European elites. Forced to watch from the periphery, plantation slaves in the French colony of Trinidad and Tobago would hold a celebration of their own for the harvest, which they called Camboulet. At this harvest festival, there would be drumming, singing and dancing. It's said that this is where calypso music originated too. The Trinidad Carnival turned into a celebration of freedom once they gained their independence from England, who took control of the island after the French Revolution. Costumes and steel pans were added and we can begin to see the carnival that we recognise today. With much tension in the Notting Hill area, it was Trinidadian-born Claudia Jones who was integral to the first community celebration called the Caribbean Carnival in 1959. Claudia had been deported to live in England after fighting for the rights of oppressed groups in the US. She continued to be politically active in England and was the first black editor of a national newspaper. The first Caribbean carnival was held indoors and televised and five subsequent events across London followed. Raoun Laslit was a co-founder of the London Free School which was a congregation of free thinkers, artists and activists in Notting Hill. Laslit herself was of Native American and Russian ancestry and promoting cultural unity was always at the forefront of her ideas. She established Notting Hill Festival in 1966, which would later change to the name Notting Hill Carnival. Her aim, along with other organisers, was to unify the communities that made up Notting Hill, mainly Caribbeans, Africans and Irish. The first carnival was held at various indoor and outdoor locations, showcasing different artists. But it was performances by Caribbean musicians which really captured the local community's imagination. Russell Henderson was one of these musicians. Hailing from Trinidad, he founded England's first steel pan group. Floats playing this music saw local people of Caribbean descent flock to the streets. This subsequently attracted more Caribbean performers and it became a Trinidadian-dominated occasion. The final piece of this puzzle is reserved for Leslie Palmer. Leslie was a teacher and activist and is held up as the one to transform Notting Hill Carnival into the large-scale street party we now know it to be. Getting sponsorship and even more bands to play, attendees went up from 100,000 in 1975 to half a million a decade later. My earliest memory is of the um, floats, the people dressed up in their costumes, um, their, the music, the steel pans. Oh, it was fantastic. All the dressing up and it was just so 
exuberating and exciting and as children when you see all of this it kind of makes you think wow this is actually happening on the streets of London and it was just it was just exciting and we used to my mum used to put us on the trucks when we used to go so we'd get on the trucks and it'd be driving along and the truck would be bouncing because everybody's dancing and listening to the steel pans playing it was just oh it's beautiful and the colors and in the mornings when we used to get there because my aunt lived there on um, Ladbrook Grove not Ladbrook Grove on Westbourne Park Road and the floats used to go past there so in the morning we'd get there it was called Duvejou which is the early hours of the morning where people dress up in um, like rags and have mud all over them and it was just like it was that was frightening for as a child seeing that but then it used to be like we understood what was going on it was the days of slavery when they're talking about um, the people getting up early in the morning and that's how they used to dance and get together so yeah it was beautiful it's a beautiful scene for a child. Carnival culture wasn't completely alien to Britain. The Bartholomew Fair and the Southwark Fair in the 18th century were rare moments of festivity. However, these early examples were banned due to the activities being deemed immoral. Activities such as whoring, drinking, pickpocketing and people dressing up like the Archbishop of Canterbury and indulging themselves resulted in the ban. Notting Hill Carnival single-handedly revived this long-forgotten tradition of cultural celebration and enjoyment. But it wasn't always clean sailing in the beginning, was it, Dan? No, me sure it wasn't. And in the context of the time with problems with racism and race relations in the UK, it comes as no surprise that the early years of Carnival were marred by riots and attacks on the police, who sought to shut the Carnival down. A change in policy by the police did not come into play until 1987, which then saw a more conciliatory approach to carnival policing, which pushed crime and violence to the periphery. And now, today, still, year after year, you're always sure to hear some discussion surrounding the police. Yeah, and some say crime has persisted, with many arguing the cost to the British taxpayer being over £6 million is too high. However, the estimated revenue from Carnival is said to be as high as £93 million to the local economy. And as all things do, the Carnival has evolved into one of the most enjoyed events in the London calendar and is far safer and more culturally diverse than when it began. It really is a weekend not to be missed if you're out in London. We discussed earlier how immigrant communities began to make up the face of estates around All Saints and the Colville Gardens area from the 1920s onwards. At first, this included a variety of people from Europe. But later on in the century, after World War II, there was an increase in arrivals from the Caribbean. Called on to rebuild the British economy, immigrants took to the only accommodation they could afford, which were often overcrowded and unsafe, leading to slum conditions growing up in the area. These conditions, teamed with increasing racism, led to social tensions rising. The Notting Hill race riots of 1958 ultimately materialised as a result of all of these issues. The summer of 1958 saw an increase in attacks on black people, which were often led by groups of teddy boys. 
The Teddy Boys were a British subculture which began springing up in the early 1950s, celebrating a revival in Edwardian fashion and were often made up of white working class males. Arguably, the worst of these attacks occurred when a Swedish woman was attacked for primarily dating a black man. She had been seen arguing with her Jamaican boyfriend the previous night and then was set upon by a group of teddy boys, physically assaulting her and throwing out racial slurs. Following the assault, later that night, up to 400 teddy boys then descended on Caribbean homes, attacking them. Similar attacks followed each night until finally dying out on 5th of September. Events like this led to many social and civil movements originating in the area throughout the 1960s and 70s and is where the term counterculture stems from, those fighting for an alternative society. Another example of one of the counterculture groups in the area is the underground scene. Based on the hippie subculture growing in America, this movement had a strong revolutionary agenda at the heart of it even going on to spurn the creation of its own magazines, bands and clubs. Many of those making up the counterculture in Notting Hill were artistic types, which still remains the case today. There was also a large contingency from Oxbridge and local art schools. The underground scene was synonymous with drugs and members often experimented with cannabis and LSD. Like much of the counterculture, the underground scene was often met with police harassment. Mick Farron, one prominent figure of the movement, stated, Police harassment, if anything, made the underground press stronger. It focused attention, stiffened resolve and tended to confirm that what we were doing was considered dangerous to the establishment. If you live here, you meet so many people, poets, painters, all sorts. And I'd say it's the most creative part of England. In fact, one of the most creative parts of the world. I've lived in many of the world's principal cities, from Greenwich Village to Melbourne. But I'd say, this place has really got the most zap going. Everybody goes around to everyone else's pad to jam and talk and so on. There are an amazing number of groups in the Grove, or who got their start in the Grove. I mean you go down Portobello Road on a Saturday afternoon and it takes you about five hours to say hello and one hour to do the shopping. Notting Hill appears to be a real cultural melting pot, which resulted in a great deal of conflict. But there were also movements of great intellectual and cultural creation. Wouldn't you agree, Dan? Absolutely, Misha. As you've mentioned, there are a great number of cultural influences that all join together to create a very distinctive British counterculture. From the American beatnik generation of Allen Ginsberg and William Burroughs to the free thinker Timothy Leary, famed for his LSD experiments, ideas that had swept America concerning drugs, sexual freedom, race relations, women's rights, equality and social justice, all had come to settle in London and found a home in Notting Hill. Wow, the area really has been on a roller coaster ride. It certainly has. And an anti authoritarian narrative grew out of this cultural exchange, and the race riots of the 60s in Britain, as well as the emergence of the Notting Hill Carnival, can all be traced back to this cultural forge in the 1960s. 
Saints Community Hall, housing the London Free School, had been the previous hub of Notting Hill's music scene. But this had been redeveloped for housing, taking it out of use for the community. And so, in the 1970s, an alternative was built in the Acklam Hall, found on Acklam Road. Now, music, of course, goes hand in hand with counterculture, discussed earlier. So naturally, Notting Hill attracted many alternative music genres to fit in with the scene. Popular music to be widely played in the area include reggae and punk music. Venues like All Saints Church and Acklam Hall became centres for the community to gather and express themselves. You could find local rude boys partying away next to elaborate gross skinheads, all brought together because Notting Hill was their ground. As a venue itself, Acklam Hall wasn't the greatest, with the most basic of facilities and an unimaginative design. But despite this, there is no doubt that a culture was built on these alternative music types, which grew up within the four walls found under the Westway. The hall has seen many a rowdy crowd, with the likes of some of the greatest bands playing at the venue, like The Great Clash and Joy Division. Further up Acklam Road on Portobello Green, even Bob Marley and the Jam held gigs. No doubt, many Acklam Hall regulars would have been on the front line when riots occurred in the area again in 1976. With racial tensions running high, there was a larger-than-average police presence being felt during the Notting Hill Carnival weekend, alongside high levels of stop and search. The day has been named the Carnival of Terror, as events quickly descended into chaos. It's said this event helped to usher in the Race Relations Act in the UK, which sought to rid Britain of discrimination against other races. However, police forces were exempt from its conditions. To bring the community together and to pay for the high number of legal fees which needed to be paid for those arrested in the riot, reggae promoter Wilf Walker organised a punk and reggae party in Acklam Hall. Joe Strummer, a member of The Clash, remembers the day as It wasn't our riot, but we felt like one. The hall continued to hold music gigs up until the 1980s when another riot kicked off after a gig in 1981. After this, the venue closed for almost a decade. In recent years, the venue has become a nightclub. Acklam Hall was just up here and I went to gigs there, which was always a laugh. Anyone who went from the area had to watch themselves, as you know, everyone used to join up. You had the Labrook Grove skins, you had the local Rude Boys, the local Rusters, and they all joined up. And from anyone who went from around here, you had to watch yourself, man. If you went from the area, there was a good chance to get in a fight. That Acklam Hall was a bit naughty. And now, a nice historic end to our tour of Notting Hill, with an event that seems to tie all the cultural and historical elements of the area together. I couldn't agree more. The Rock Against Racism gig in 1979 is a dramatic conclusion to everything we have covered preceding the regeneration and gentrification of Notting Hill in the 80s and the 90s. From the creation of towering mansions that were subdivided to house incoming immigrants, to the formation of the carnival to promote race relations and celebrate culture, this all concluded in the counterculture of the 1960s and the radical tensions that came along with it. Notting Hill is truly a historical area of London. That's great. Thanks, Dan. Well, that's all from us this week and episode four. 
We hope you learned one or two things you didn't know about Notting Hill before. As always, we want to say a big thank you to everyone who makes our podcast possible. Thanks to all our volunteer researchers and to the Shoutout Network for hosting our show. And a special final thanks to our sound engineer and producer. We love hearing from you guys, so keep sending us your questions and messages on local history to our Twitter and Facebook page, at an archived. And also give us a follow on Instagram, at an archived UK. Don't forget, please leave us comments and reviews on the Apple Store or SoundCloud so we can keep spreading the word. We also love when you share your local history stories with us. So whether you've worked somewhere, grown up playing somewhere, or just have a fond memory, send us your audio or arrange an interview with us by email by contacting us on info at unarchived.co. And don't forget you have two opportunities to come and hang with us this summer and learn more about each of the places we've discussed on our show. Firstly, we're hosting guided tours around London where you can see history being brought back to life with visuals of how sites have transformed over time. Book your tickets today by visiting our website www.unarchived.co Also, we'll be at the official launch party of the Shoutout Network in Brixton on the 6th of August. Come down to see a live performance from all the great shows on the network. Thank you, and don't miss episode 5, our final one, where we'll be showing you around Shoreditch.